Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He was known by many names over the six decades he made music. And for the last 40-plus years, he was the most discussed, photographed, imitated, worshipped, and admired rock star in history. No single rock and roll performer had a more profound effect on our music as David Bowie. All of today's best alt-rock bands have a bit of Bowie in them, and that net can be cast much, much wider. Madonna, Lady Gaga, Prince. The list is endless. He was a singer, a songwriter, a record producer, movie actor, stage performer, internet entrepreneur, artist, art critic, fashion maven, Wall Street investment, and gay icon. He was a trendsetter, a shapeshifter, a cultural mover and shaker. He's Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Halloween Jack, Plastic Soul Man, The Thin White Duke. And now he's gone. David Bowie, with all that, it's important to recognize all the contributions he's made to our music. So, this is Remembering David Bowie, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome to our remembrance of David Bowie, who passed away on January 10th, 2016, just two days after his 69th birthday. All right, I can hear some people saying, why should I care? He was this old guy who did his best work decades before I was born. My mom and dad weren't him. This means nothing to me. Oh, yeah? Well, if you want to understand where so much of today's alt-rock came from, you need to understand what David Bowie did. He is so important to our music that without him, this music probably wouldn't exist. Like I said on the last show, the more you study the history of rock, the more you'll realize how many roads lead back to, or at least through, David Bowie. And what we're doing is going through his career chronologically, highlighting the things that he did that shaped the direction of rock. We left things off with the Young Americans album in 1975. Bowie was still in his imperial phase, that part of his career where the songs and albums just kept coming. Over a period of about three years, Bowie released six albums. Six! He made a series of daring image changes, all of which captured the public's imagination and his concert tours were among the most theatrical and most ambitious things ever taken on the road. Here's Bowie talking about his favorite characters and changing personas. I can't help but have a soft spot for Ziggy Stardust. I mean, not that I'd ever want to portray him again, but it, it certainly was sort of fun at the time. It's, uh, it's very hard to convince people that, you're not, that, that you can be quite different off stage in, in rock and roll than you are on stage, because it's, it's part of the, uh, 
One of the principles of rock is that it's the person himself expressing what he really and truly feels from there, you know. And um, that applies to a lot of artists. But to me, it doesn't. It never did. It didn't look like he was capable of doing anything wrong. At least that's the way it looked to the general public. But the truth was the boy was drinking heavily and using tremendous amounts of cocaine while eating little more than milk and peppers. The cracked actor really was cracking up. He did crazy things like store urine in the fridge because he was afraid unspecified witches were out to steal his vital essence, which apparently lived in his urine. And he toured with a telescope because he was positive that aliens in an orbiting mothership were coming to get him. Bowie would later say that he has no recollection of anything that happened to him in 1976, even though he made another best-selling album. Mind you, it was a bit of a weird record in places. For example, this song is about a hallucination his even crazier friend, Iggy Pop, had during one of their drug sessions. Iggy thought that Bowie's TV was eating his girlfriend. So Bowie wrote a song about a holographic television, model number TBC15. In the middle 70s, David Bowie drank a lot of alcohol and consumed a lot of cocaine, and he admits that he was completely out of control. That's very true. I didn't, I mean, there's like, yeah, there's sure, there's a whole period between late 74 and 76, which is very, very hazy. What, was, what were you doing? Well, cocaine, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but an enormous lot, I mean, you must have done quite a lot. Uh, yeah, excessive amounts of cocaine. I was, uh, you know, an absolute, complete addict to it. Very, very, very addicted to it in a highly dangerous fashion. Yet even in this madness, Bowie was able to keep moving forward. We had a new character to go along with Ziggy, Aladdin Sane, the cracked actor, and the plastic soul boy. We now had Bowie as the thin white duke, this amoral, hollow man who was both damaged and emotionless with his white shirt and waistcoat. This character came from a sort of autobiography Bowie had begun while filming The Man Who Fell to Earth, the movie where he played a doomed space alien named Thomas Jerome Newton. Bowie loved that character. He asked to keep the costuming from the film shoot. And Bowie's look over the next couple of years contained more than just a little Thomas Jerome Newton. I don't know how he did it, but he got himself together enough to leave L.A. and all the bad people that were surrounding him. He and Iggy Pop packed up and left for Berlin. Now, Berlin. Nobody went to Berlin. This was the height of the Cold War. Berlin was a divided city with the Western sectors totally surrounded by East Germany and its Soviet masters. But this is precisely the environment that allowed for a unique artistic and bohemian culture to develop. Bowie wanted to soak that up, and the music evolved again. It was still funky and soulful, but there was something else going on here. Bowie had discovered the electronic sounds of Kraftwerk and the Krautrock of another German band called Neu. He began to think that these methods of producing music were the future. And what better way to follow this muse than to move where it all seemed to be happening? Germany. They found a place at Hopstrasse 155 in the Schonenberg area of the city. Right below was a gay bar where they used to drink, and not far from the Kreuzberg area, which is a good place for bars and clubs and funky shops. They found a studio called Hansa, about 500 yards from Potsdamer Platz, which is where the Berlin Wall ran through the city, and still does in sections. It was in Studio 2 where Bowie got back to the business of making music, and he and Iggy were very serious about it. 
Bowie produced Iggy's The Idiot There. He also recorded two of his own albums. The first was Low, an experimental and often very electronic album that was part man who fell to earth, part station to station, and part whatever was happening in Berlin at the time. Bowie was hugely enamored with German electronic music, specifically Kraftwerk. It was a colder-sounding record for Bowie, but then again he was trying desperately to kick his cocaine addiction and was often in a lot of physical and psychic pain. Side One could be characterized as a collection of short song fragments with nothing running longer than three and a half minutes. Side Two was all instrumental and featured some very important contributions from Brian Eno. Now, at first, everybody was kind of confused, but as the years passed, Lowe has come to be recognized as a bold piece of work that further spread the idea of synthesizer music beyond just what the Germans were doing. Remember, this is before the whole technopop thing. Lowe became very important to a new generation of kids in the post-punk era who wanted to do something different than just play guitars punk style. Take Joy Division, for example, hugely influential band. When they got together with producer Martin Hannett to record the classic album Unknown Pleasures, they wanted it to sound like what Bowie was doing at the time. And think of how many people that record influenced over the years. Let's sample some of the electronica of Lowe. This is called Warsawa. Few people, let alone major rock stars, were making experimental music like that in 1977. Low was followed by Heroes less than 10 months later. It was also recorded in Hansa. Bowie continued to follow his Krautrock muse. In fact, the title of the album is a tribute to a song called Hero that appears on an album by a German band called Neu. There's also a song in the record called V2 Schneider, which is a nod to Florian Schneider, one of the founders of Kraftwerk. This record caught the earliest bits of what would end up being called New Wave, and once again, Bowie was way ahead of the curve, and Heroes has gone down in history as one of Bowie's all-time best records. One day, as Bowie was trying to finish up the lyrics for a particular song, he told producer Tony Visconti to go for a walk so he could think by himself in the control room. At the time, Visconti was having a bit of a fling with one of the backup singers on the album, so he grabbed her and went outside. From the control room window... Bowie saw Visconti and his girlfriend steal a quick kiss by the Berlin Wall. And that's where the second verse of this song came from. The third album in Bowie's so-called Berlin trilogy wasn't made in Berlin at all. It was recorded in Switzerland and also in New York, but its style and feel still had the trappings of his German experience. For the third time in a row, Brian Eno was there to make some important contributions. He didn't produce, that was still Tony Visconti's job, but he did help Bowie explore what he was trying to do. It was called Lodger, and it was the least commercially successful of these albums, and critics really didn't know what to make of it at first. But, like a lot of Bowie material, it simply needed to age a bit. If you've never tried the record, spend some time with it. Bowie aficionados will tell you that it's perhaps his most underrated album. Clearly, though, after three records, it was time for a change. Berlin had provided Bowie with material for three albums in just two years. 
changing his base of operations to London and New York, Bowie thought he could find a new balance, touching elements of post-punk, art rock, and pop. Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, the next record, was great, the perfect way to end the 1970s and to welcome in the 1980s. The centerpiece of the record was Ashes to Ashes, a song that not only picked up the story of Major Tom from Space Oddity, a character that Bowie had introduced 10 years earlier, but it was also made into a hideously expensive music video that cost 250,000 pounds. Now, you got to remember that MTV did not exist back then. Music videos were still in their infancy. Their main purpose was to send them to TV shows like Top of the Pops so that the artists didn't have to go in person. It was also a way for an artist to more carefully control their public image. A prepared video offered much more control than a TV appearance, where something could obviously go very, very wrong. But 250,000 pounds? That was an incredible amount of money, the most expensive video ever made to that point. And it's not like Bowie could really afford it. He had just emerged from a long and ugly legal battle with a former manager that led him perilously close to being broke. It was a major, major gamble to do this thing. Yet, Bowie guessed right again. Not only was the song sonically brilliant, it sounds perfectly contemporary today, but it tapped into this new scene coming out of Britain, the New Romantics, a stylish and futuristic form of post-punk electronic pop coming out of the London clubs. In fact, several kids from that scene are in the video with Bowie. In case you're running the video in your mind as you're listening, that elderly woman at the end is not Bowie's mother. That was the rumor, but it's not true. Again, a hugely influential album, especially on a young kid from Manchester named Morrissey and his soon-to-be mate Johnny Marr. Again, no Bowie, no Smiths. Think about where modern music would be without them. As the 80s began, it was only natural for people to wonder how much more great music Bowie had in him. I mean, after all, if we take Hunky Dory as the first album where Bowie got his groove, he had released 11 studio albums in just over eight and a half years. Plus, two live albums. Plus, he had found time to collaborate with other people like his buddy Iggy Pop. Plus, he had survived deep cocaine addiction. And he'd been involved in more than just music. He'd been in two movies during that time and was just embarking on his role as John Merrick in the stage production of The Elephant Man. And the scripts were piling up daily. Everybody wanted to work with him. These were projects that regular rock stars just did not take on. How long could Bowie keep guessing right and staying ahead of the curve? The answer was one more time. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. The gap that followed the release of Bowie's Scary Monsters was the longest gap between albums in his career, a little more than two and a half years. He had other things to do, acting mainly, and that included 157 performances as The Elephant Man, including a stint on Broadway. The acting thing would continue for the rest of the 80s. There was Christine F., a TV film called Ball, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, really good movie, Yellowbeard, and The Hunger, all in 1983. By the way, he played a vampire in The Hunger, something that endeared him to goth fans forever. Plus, there was Into the Night, Labyrinth, for which he did the soundtrack, Absolute Beginners, all those came in 1985, and The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988. And then there was the new $17.5 million record deal with EMI Records, one of the biggest deals in the industry to that time. 
For all that money, Bowie chose to make a more commercially sounding album. He'd always considered himself to be something of a cult artist, a big one, but not on the same commercial footing as his peers. So maybe it was time to try that persona, the bigger-than-life rock star. So after nearly a decade of assuming roles of different characters for each album, he decided to be just David Bowie. Even though when you think about it, that was a new character too, one we'd never seen before. He and his new band of session players tore through the recording process in just 17 days, and that includes mixing, by the way. The final product was a huge success, something that came as a surprise to everyone, including Bowie. In 1983, the idea of doing a hybrid rock-dance-funk album was crazy, yet it sold more than 6 million copies, making it Bowie's best-selling album of all time. Let's Dance was a massive success for Bowie and drew 2.6 million people to the Sirius Moonlight Tour as it wound through 16 countries. But it also caused some major problems for Bowie. It messed with his head. Here's what he told one magazine. I remember looking out over these waves of people who were coming to hear this record played live and thinking, I wonder how many Velvet Underground albums these people have in their record collections. I suddenly felt very apart from my audience. And it was depressing because... I didn't know what they wanted. That confused headspace was the beginning of a spiral for Bowie that continued for the rest of the 80s. Everything that he did subsequently was judged in relation to Let's Dance and everything that came before it. And when he rushed out a follow-up to capitalize on this new audience, it kind of, sort of, really didn't work. Maybe the less said about the Tonight album and the Never Let Me Down album, the better. The reviews for the records and tours were not kind. And Bowie knew things weren't working. So he did what he does. He flushed everything away again. This flushing was a two-stage process. The first was something called the Sound and Vision Tour, where Bowie promised to play his old hits one more time and then retire them forever. One more time for Space Oddity and Ziggy Stardust and Rebel Rebel and Young Americans and Heroes and even Let's Dance. Bowie felt that once he cleared the decks and all that baggage, he could start fresh. His idea was to form a four-piece rock band with him just as the lead singer. Inspiration was taken from Jimi Hendrix, Cream, and the Pixies. They called themselves Tin Machine, and when their first record came out, it definitely could not be mistaken for a David Bowie record. Tin Machine, from their self-titled debut album, and a single entitled Under the God. There would be two Tin Machine albums before the project was retired. And during this time, which would be between 1989 and 1991, they received some pretty harsh reviews. Then again, Bowie was being judged against not only by what he had done, by what was happening with the rise of alternative music at the time. Bowie was seen by some as an old man trying to be hip again with his rock band. After more than a decade of being ahead of the curve, Bowie was severely understeering and headed off into the grass. He'd also painted himself into a corner by disowning all his big hits. So now what was he going to do? Get a new job? Settle down and get married? Okay, that, that sounded like a good idea. 
When Tin Machine hit the rocks, Bowie had no intention of retiring from recording. He still wanted to make music, but as always, he wanted to do it on his own terms. And he could afford to do it. He'd finally managed to get out from underneath the exit obligations from that horrible management contract from the 70s, and he was free to do business as he saw fit. In 1993, a record called Black Tie, White Noise didn't result in any hit singles, but it was generally acknowledged to be his best works in Scary Monsters 13 years earlier. That was followed by Outside, a perhaps overproduced concept record with Brian Eno, which was based on a paranoid end-of-the-millennium short story called The Diary of Nathan Adler. But by this time, some of the new stars of the alt-rock era had begun to pay some very public homage to Bowie and his legacy. If you were into any kind of goth, Bowie loomed as a presence. Knowing that Bowie was a fan of the Pixies and Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins and Suede and Oasis and Blur, and vice versa, you had to give him respect. You could see lots of Bowie influence in Depeche Mode and The Cure and New Order. And if you loved industrial music, Bowie was very important to you, especially if you were a fan of Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor was, and always will be, a diehard Bowie fan, so much so that not only did they tour together, but Bowie got Trent to appear in the creepy stalker video for this song from 1997 called I'm Afraid of Americans, which looks like something straight out of Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. I'm afraid of Americans, I'm afraid of the world, I'm afraid I can't help it, I'm afraid I can't, I'm afraid of Americans. Bowie and a Nine Inch Nails remix of I'm Afraid of Americans, originally from the 1997 album Earthling. Plenty of positive reviews and lots of love on the world tour that went along with it. But Bowie was starting to slow down, at least in terms of his musical output. He had some new priorities. First, he had a new wife, Iman Mohammed Majid, Aman the supermodel for short. They were married in Switzerland on April 24, 1992. Each had been married before, a man twice, but this relationship seemed to provide the stability that had been in short supply for much of both their lives. So, a new priority there. They settled down nicely in New York. Bowie enjoyed acting, so there were more roles. He became more interested in painting and had some showings in galleries. And he became more interested in technology. He was one of the first artists to set up a proper website. This was back in the 90s when few people were into web design. His company got so good at it that they once had a contract to design and maintain the website for the New York Yankees. Around the same time, he created the soundtrack for a computer game called Omicron, which featured both him and among his virtual characters. He also launched a competition, a cyber song contest, which saw the winner end up with a song on his 1999 album, Hours, and a guy by the name of Alex Grant won. And Bowie pulled off something rather masterful in the world of finance, the so-called Bowie bonds. Let me try and explain this. In 1997, a New York investment banker named David Pullman put together a package of securities backed by the future projected royalties of 25 Bowie albums, a total of 287 songs that were recorded before 1990. Bowie got $55 million up front, and then it was up to the manager of the bonds to make that money back plus a profit of 7.9% per year by managing the money-making properties of that music over a period of 10 years. So, this meant that Bowie was paid 10 years' worth of royalties up front. 
He then used this money to buy back the rights to songs that he had lost to his former manager. And as far as anybody can tell, this was the first time anyone had ever used intellectual property to secure a financial instrument such as bonds. And once the Bowie bond sold, others followed, including the Motown songwriting team of Holland Dozier Holland, as well as a number of other professional songwriters. For example, maybe you noticed an increase in the presence of the Joan Jett song, I Love Rock and Roll, for the first decade of the 21st century. That's because it was written by a guy named Jake Hooker. That song's future rights was wrapped up in a bond with other intellectual properties. Hooker got the money for the song up front, and the holders of the bond went to work exploiting the song to make their money back, and that included licensing the song to a bunch of different places. And then there was this. Bowie managed to get ahead of the curve yet again. In 1997, he already saw where music was heading with the Internet. He prophesied that with the distribution of music promised by the Internet, music would become cheap as water coming out of a tap. At the time he signed his Bowie Bond deal, his catalog was generating sales of more than a million albums a year. But by 2004, about seven years in, those bonds were downgraded to junk status. Why? Well, because of declining music sales brought on by the rise of the Internet. Meanwhile, Bowie continued to make records. There was Heathen in 2002, and then Reality from 2003. And it looked like Bowie had every intention of never stopping. But then he did. We'll look at why next. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. David Bowie was still making music and touring into the 21st century, his fifth decade of making music. But then he had to slow down. In June 2005, he was on stage at a festival in Germany when he started suffering chest pains. It was first diagnosed as a pinched nerve. Later, though, it was discovered to have been a heart attack, a blocked coronary artery. Emergency angioplasty was required. After that, he slowed down to almost nothing a guest vocal here, a guest appearance there, and then he became pretty much invisible. He and Amon were living in New York on Lafayette Street, keeping out of sight. There were rumors about poor health and other ominous things. But meanwhile, projects about Bowie went on all over the world, a tribute at the opening ceremony of the Olympics, a museum exhibit, all without Bowie's input. Was he okay? Well, apparently so, because in complete secrecy, he wrote and recorded a brand new album over a period of two years, and no one involved said anything. No one. The first the world heard of this record was on January 8th, 2013, Bowie's 66th birthday. All of a sudden, there was a new song and the announcement of a new album called The Next Day. How could one of the most famous musicians in the history of the universe managed to record an album in total secrecy in the age of the internet. That was a miracle. So how did he do it? Well, first and foremost, the people surrounding him were his most loyal associates. They were sworn to secrecy and they kept their promises. And secondly, Bowie wasn't exactly hiding in his New York apartment on Lafayette Street. He and Amon went out with friends. They went out to the theater. They went out to dinner. They attended various social events. They went to their daughter's school, did the parent-teacher thing. Those in the neighborhood said that he was often up at six in the morning, walking the streets to get some air. He shopped for groceries once a week at the local store, and he was fond of a particular sandwich shot on Prince Street. It's just that he was so low-key that nobody noticed and gave him all kinds of space. Everyone was used to thinking of him as Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke. Nobody even paid attention to this guy, David Jones. When the Next Day album came out, 
Some people got very optimistic. Might Bowie agree to tour one more time? No. Bowie didn't even give interviews for the next day. And then he disappeared again. But he was busy. He read, he painted, he hung out with the parents of the kids his daughter Lexi went to school with. And as hard as that is to believe, he was just, again, regular David Jones going about his life. And life was good, I guess. Well, it was until the summer of 2014. Bowie had been feeling unwell. From what we know, the diagnosis was liver cancer. Bad, but treatable, at least at first. But Bowie knew that he probably had time for just one more album. So he started writing again, stage managing his exit from this world with songs that would be his own elegy, his own requiem. He and his trusted associates booked time at a studio called The Magic Shop on Crosby Street. And getting to the studio was really easy. Down the elevator in the building on Lafayette, a quick walk through an alley called Jersey Street to an unmarked door. And that was it. 283 steps from the front door of his building. He started work around 10 o'clock each day with a double macchiato from a coffee shop called La Colombe, and he finished up at a decent hour of the day so he could be home for dinner with his wife and daughter. In November 2015, the news came from his doctors. The chemo was no longer working. The cancer was terminal. It was just a matter of time. The album was finished, and hints of new material started leaking out. First, there was news that a new Bowie song would be the theme for a new British gangster TV series. And then, that a new album called Black Star would be released on January 8, 2016, Bowie's 69th birthday. Just before Christmas came a couple of songs, including a track with an ominous-looking video where Bowie seemed to be really obsessed about his mortality. Listen to the lyrics of Lazarus. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen I've got drama can't be stolen In early December 2015, Bowie attended a performance of his musical Lazarus. After meeting with the director, he collapsed backstage. He regained some of his strength and was able to resume some normal activities even seen on the streets of New York as late as January 8, 2016, his birthday. But then on Sunday, January 10th, just two days later, feeling fatigued, he lay down. And he apparently never woke up. Cancer can catch up with you unexpectedly sometimes. His body was cremated, and he asked in his will that his ashes be scattered in Bali. He left instructions that there be no funeral. So let's try to sum up why Bowie matters so much to music and why his death affected so many millions of people. David Bowie irrevocably changed our culture. He began by subverting what it meant to be a rock star. The way he pushed rock into new areas of theater and spectacle. His shape-shifting style, which has been imitated by everyone, up to and including Madonna and Lady Gaga. His inspiration to the punk rock movement, the new wave kids, the post-punks, including techno-pop, electronica, goth, and industrial. His effect on the alternative generation, from the Pixies to Nirvana to Nine Inch Nails to Arcade Fire. He introduced more theater, more fantasy, and more imagination into rock and roll culture than anyone else, redefining what it meant to be a rock star again and again and again. No fewer than six of his albums can be declared out-and-out classics. He defined cool 
for a dozen consecutive years for his use of electronics in the 1970s, for always insisting that rock progress. He wasn't always right in that regard, but he never stopped pushing for progress, for being candid about sexual orientation, truthful or not, but in such a way that it allowed others the courage to be candid themselves. He introduced sexual ambiguity into mainstream culture, and in doing so, became a powerful gay icon, opening the doors for hundreds, if not thousands, of gay performers, thereby launching a gay activist element in rock and pop. His sense of fashion and style, his acting, his technological acumen, his business abilities. And the entire time, he made music that not only sold 140 million plus records, but also created one of the biggest and most enduring cults in the history of music. And before you say that he should have been made a knight for all this, forget it. He was offered a knighthood in 2003, but he turned it down. I would have never had any intention of accepting anything like that. I seriously don't know what it's for. That's not what I spent my life working for. That's what he said. His music and his concept of image control has influenced no fewer than three generations of musicians. And through his work with Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, and through his early championing of the Velvet Underground, Bowie acted as an educator, a person who helped spread the word on these otherwise obscure performers. He was a video pioneer. He was a highly regarded actor, both in movies and on stage. He was an internet innovator. He was a Wall Street dealmaker. It's no wonder he received an honorary degree from Berkeley in May of 1999. He was, quite simply, a one and only, the kind that we will never, ever see again. David Bowie will be missed, but at least we will always know he was here. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I hope you enjoyed this look at why David Bowie matters so much. Two hours is barely enough to cover the subject, but if you want to go deeper, there are plenty of books and websites on the man, and there will no doubt be plenty more to come in the years ahead. If you'd like to get in touch with me, old-fashioned email is the best. I read everything and answer everything myself. The address is alan at alancross.ca, just one L and Alan, please. And then there's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every single day with cool music stuff that I think you need to know. Plus, you can look for me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. We really should connect somehow. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 